This episode contains discussions of suicide, drug use, and violence. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. In October 1970, rock and roll legend Janis Joplin overdosed in the Landmark Motor Hotel in Hollywood, California, at 27 years old. When police arrived at her room, they found her body between the nightstand and her bed, high heels on, a pack of smokes in one hand, spare change in the other. According to officials, Joplin had taken a bad batch of heroin. Once sufficiently high, she visited the cigarette vending machine in her hotel lobby before drifting away to a slow, inevitable death. Peggy Caserta, however, doesn't believe that version of the story. As Joplin's good friend, she claims that if the heroin really was as fatal as the police said, the star wouldn't have been able to walk in heels, let alone operate a vending machine. As for the quality of the drugs, Peggy says that she used the same batch herself, and she's alive to tell the tale. Four years earlier, in 1966, the 23-year-old eponymous frontman of the Bobby Fuller Four was found dead in the driver's seat of his mother's blue Oldsmobile, parked about 250 feet away from the hotel where Janis Joplin took her last breath. According to the coroner's report, Bobby Fuller died by suicide or accident. The pair of deaths is considered an interesting coincidence. One unusual celebrity death doesn't necessarily inform another. But if the circumstances surrounding Bobby's death prove anything, it's that when coincidences pile high enough, they deserve a closer look. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a podcast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. This is our episode on the death of Bobby Fuller, the celebrity frontman of the 60s rock and roll band, The Bobby Fuller Four. This episode, we're exploring the mysterious circumstances surrounding his passing. Police ruled his death an accident, but his bandmates and family suspected foul play And the list of suspects runs the gamut, from the L.A. mob to notorious cult leader Charles Manson. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. 
Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The Bobby Fuller Four first launched onto the charts in the spring of 1966 with their hit song, I Fought the Law. Written by Sonny Curtis and filled with up-tempo melodic harmonies, their rendition became an instant rock and roll classic. Bobby Fuller's voice traveled across American radio waves, breaking rocks in the hot sun, I fought the law, and the law won. The single is the reason that the band is considered something of a one-hit wonder today, and there's some truth to the slight. Finding someone to hum even their more popular originals, like Let Her Dance or Love's Made a Fool of You, proves difficult. But if you remove the millions of songs that have saturated the industry since and isolate the band in time, it's impossible to dismiss the Bobby Fuller Four as a mere momentary blip. In 1966, they were Beatles member George Harrison's most listened to band. Bobby Fuller looked like a Kennedy and performed like Elvis. Newspapers and media outlets labeled him the rock and roll king of the Southwest. A June 1982 article in the El Paso Times recounts how the Bobby Fuller Four appeared at Dick Clark's World Teenage Fair at the Palladium in Hollywood. Mobs of screaming girls lunged at Bobby and Randy, ripping their clothes and hair. Admirers were so hysterical that apparently one persistent fan escaped with Bobby's watch and cufflinks. The day Bobby was found dead marked just eight months since the band released their first 12-track studio album, KRLA King of the Wheels, five months since their follow-up record, I Fought the Law, and only a handful of weeks since the album's single landed in the United States Top 10. In other words, just as 23-year-old Bobby Fuller stood on the precipice of superstardom, he vanished, only to reappear dead. Bobby's mother, Lorraine, was staying with her sons at their apartment in Hollywood, California, 1776 Sycamore Avenue, number 317. Bobby and his younger brother, Randy, were both members of the up-and-coming band, the Bobby Fuller Four. Randy didn't love how the name turned him into a number and his brother into a star, but he preferred it to their record label's original choice, Bobby Fuller and the Fanatics. Bobby was two years Randy's senior. In the band, Randy played bass and sang backup to Bobby's guitar and lead vocals. 
The brothers' road manager and close friend, Rick Stone, was visiting them at the time. The evening of July 17, 1966, was relatively uneventful. Randy had left to visit his friend and artist, Boyd Elder. Lorraine, Bobby, and Rick drank beers and watched television. At some point, Bobby left the room to call his girlfriend, Nancy Norton, a flight attendant who lived in New York City. Over the course of the night, a handful of old friends from Texas stopped by the apartment to hang out. In conversation, Bobby mentioned how excited he was about the Corvette he planned to buy the next day. To those around him, he seemed in good spirits. Around 1 a.m., Lorraine decided to turn in for the night. The place had cleared out. Rick was falling asleep on the couch with the television still on. The only other person in the apartment was her son. Lorraine found Bobby in a corner picking at his guitar and listening to records. His favorite artists included the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, and fellow Texas rocker, Buddy Holly. A freak plane crash killed Holly seven years earlier on February 3rd, 1959. In his song, American Pie, Don McLean famously referred to the accident as the day the music died. There was a time that Bobby only ever dreamed of having a career like his idol, Buddy Holly. The Bobby Fuller Four had modeled themselves after Holly's four-man band, The Crickets. Lorraine wished Bobby goodnight, knowing that his dreams were coming true. He really was just like Buddy Holly. After his mother fell asleep, Bobby allegedly took another phone call with a different girl, 33-year-old Melody Dawson. She lived nearby. Rick claims that he and Bobby had tried to buy LSD from Melody a few days earlier, but no transaction happened. Bobby was spooked when they arrived at her place and saw another car in addition to her blue 1964 Cadillac Eldorado in the driveway. Bobby said they'd try again another time. So around 1 a.m. on the morning Bobby disappeared, he told Rick that he was leaving to finally pick up the acid from Melody. Around 2.30 a.m., Rick Stone woke up to the sound of Bobby either leaving or entering the apartment. He didn't see Bobby himself, but he did see the front door open. Parched, Rick tore himself from the couch and walked to the kitchen to fix himself an iced tea. As he did, he heard what he thought were Bobby's footsteps echoing down the stairwell. Rick didn't think much of the coming and going. According to him, the sun often came up before anyone in apartment number 317 threw in the towel and caught a few winks. He assumed Bobby left to grab a midnight snack or nightcap somewhere close by. He wasn't wrong. Bobby didn't go very far, at least not at first. He stopped downstairs to visit his building manager, Lloyd Essinger, whom Bobby considered a friend. And according to Essinger, he and Bobby did share a few beers together around 3 a.m. Nobody knows where Bobby went or who he saw after he left his landlord's apartment. All we can confidently say is that Lloyd Essinger is the last person who admits to seeing the young musician alive. When Lorraine Fuller woke up on the morning of July 18, 1966, 
she noticed that their family's blue Oldsmobile wasn't parked outside. Around 8.30 a.m., Rick Stone realized the same thing as he left to go to the headquarters of the Bobby Fuller Four's record label, Del Fi. He'd assumed that he'd see Bobby there in an hour. They had a meeting that started at 9.30, but Bobby never showed. Five hours and a few fast food burgers later, the band, its music technicians, and their label executives gave up any hope of their singer gracing them with an appearance. When the clock ticked past 3.30 p.m., they left. Around 4.30 p.m., Lorraine Fuller's anxiety drove her to step outside to check if her son had returned. It wasn't her first time that day, but once again, neither Bobby nor his car were anywhere in sight. 30 minutes later, she left again, this time to check the mail. On her way down, she passed two of Bobby's musician friends, Ty Grimes and Mike Ciccarelli. Days earlier, they'd made plans to hang out with Bobby. Nobody had told them he was missing. Despite not seeing his car outside, they were on their way to ring his doorbell. But Lorraine barely noticed them, if she did at all. Because as she made her way downstairs, she saw what minutes earlier they hadn't. Bobby's blue Oldsmobile parked outside. She ran in the direction of the car. Bobby still sat in the driver's seat. When she opened the driver's side door, the smell of gasoline washed over her. According to Lorraine, Bobby still had one hand on the keys in the car's ignition. At first, she thought he might be sleeping. She yelled for him to wake up. But unfortunately, not even a mother's screams can wake the dead. Coming up, question marks on Bobby Fuller's autopsy report. Now, back to the story. Around 5 p.m. on July 18, 1966, Lorraine Fuller found her 23-year-old son, Bobby, dead in the front seat of their family car. The front man and star of the then-famous band, the Bobby Fuller Four, had been missing for approximately 14 hours. It's impossible to imagine the heartbreak that the former mother of three must have felt when she opened up the driver's side door. Bobby was her middle child and the second to be sent to an early grave. Five years earlier, her eldest, Jack, had been murdered in a robbery gone wrong. After Lorraine, the next people to see Bobby's body were his friends Ty Grimes and Mike Ciccarelli, who passed Lorraine in the stairwell on their way up to apartment 317. After realizing that Bobby wasn't home, the two musicians turned around to return to their car. They passed Bobby's mother again, but this time her face was ashen and she was in a full sprint. Panic and shock had sent her into hysterics. They didn't know it at the time, but she was on her way to call the police. When Grimes and Ciccarelli got outside, they saw the door to Bobby's Oldsmobile open. Lorraine's emotions were immediately given context. Bobby sat in the front seat, unmistakably dead. Grimes claimed he saw blood on his friend's shirt. After dialing 911 and informing them of the horror downstairs, Lorraine called her only surviving son. 
According to Randy, the only words his mother choked out before hanging up were, Bobby's dead. Randy immediately rushed home, of course. When he turned onto his street, he found a mob of police, reporters, and curious neighbors outside of 1776 Sycamore. As he made his way to his brother's car, he recalled how a stranger in the crowd misinformed him that his road manager, Rick Stone, had been murdered. For a second, he thought he'd misheard his mother and his brother might be alive, but he hadn't. In fact, as the stranger spoke those words, Rick was driving back to the apartment. After leaving Delphi's headquarters earlier in the afternoon, Jim Reese, the lead guitarist for the Bobby Fuller Four, took Rick to pick up his Volkswagen from an auto body shop. According to Rick, an unpleasant feeling bubbled up in his gut as he inched closer to Sycamore Street. The band's road manager had to elbow his way through the crowd. He recalled the police treating him as if he were a member of the paparazzi and not one of Bobby's best friends. But eventually, Rick got close enough to see Bobby for himself. Rick saw the singer holding a hose in one hand that connected to a gas can. Bobby's hair looked slick and oily, as if someone had poured the gasoline over him. His body appeared bruised, as if he'd been beaten, and burned in places as if he'd been set on fire. The slippers on his feet were worn down, like he'd been trudging through gravel, or had been dragged. His pinky finger appeared broken. Randy Fuller and Rick Stone stood outside until officials carried Bobby's body away. The following morning, headlines ran in the press. Rock and roll singer found dead in car. Bobby Fuller found dead. On Wednesday, July 20th, two days after Bobby's death, a funeral was held at the Church of the Hills in Los Angeles. Afterward, Bobby's family buried him in Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Hollywood Hills. Rick Stone claimed that both ceremonies were a veritable who's who of Hollywood. Among the mourners were record producer Phil Spector, R&B singer Barry White, music executive Bob Keane, and hundreds of fans. His headstone simply read, Beloved Son. After the services, Randy Fuller claimed that his mother, Lorraine, turned into a vegetable. He said, quote, we took her to the cemetery one last time the next day. She fell on the grave, and you just couldn't get her off. We had to drag her to the car." End quote. But Bobby's mother wasn't going to get closure anytime soon. On July 25, 1966, head toxicologist at the Los Angeles County Medical Examiner's Office, Edward Thompson, submitted a report of chemical analysis. He tested Bobby's blood for a number of drugs, but found no signs of barbiturates, carbon monoxide, cyanide, chlorinated hydrocarbons, or other drugs common in cases of suicide. Oddly enough, despite reports that Bobby had been drinking the night before, Thompson found no trace of alcohol in the singer's system. His brother Randy later highlighted that Thompson never tested Bobby's blood for LSD, 
He said their superintendent and last known person to see Bobby alive, Lloyd Essinger, liked to party. Randy said LSD for sure and pot. Though non-fatal, the hallucinogenic drugs would have left Bobby in an altered state of reality. A recent medical school graduate, Dr. Jerry Nelson, conducted Bobby's autopsy. Though the procedure happened shortly after Bobby's death, the report wasn't made public until October 18th, three months to the day after Lorraine found her son dead. The medical examiner noted peeling and blistering on the skin on Bobby's face, neck, chest, back, arms, and legs. Upon opening the body, apparently the organs and incised tissue emitted a pungent aroma of gasoline. But Nelson said the contents of his stomach were unremarkable, which likely meant he found no trace of gasoline inside. Other reported observations included an abnormal buildup of fluid in his lungs. The examiner listed the cause of death as asphyxia, suffocation, caused by the inhalation of gasoline. Bobby's bladder was also unusually swollen, which implied that he may have been in a state of unconsciousness well before his actual time of death. Nelson marked two question marks next to the words accident and suicide. Nelson may not have been sure about the cause of Bobby's death, but the Los Angeles Police Department had already made up their mind. The gasoline and the hose were enough to initially convince them that Bobby had died by suicide. They never impounded Bobby's Oldsmobile or even dusted for fingerprints after officials took his body away. Possibly because to them, Bobby Fuller was just another dead celebrity. From 1960 to July 1966, the list of celebrity suicides and overdoses in America included actors Margaret Sullivan, Diana Barrymore, Marie McDonald, and Marilyn Monroe, authors Ernest Hemingway and Sylvia Plath, and journalist Dorothy Kilgallen, among many others. Three years before Bobby Fuller died, President of the United States John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Two days after his death, Kennedy's alleged assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, was shot by club owner Jack Ruby. Many of those names are wrapped up in their own mysteries, conspiracy theories, and alleged cover-ups. But the point is that culturally, the idea that fame and fortune came at a price permeated public consciousness in an incredibly volatile and palpable way. And in many ways, it still does. So when the newspapers published obituaries for Bobby Fuller that alluded to Bobby being despondent in the days preceding his death, whispers spread that fame had taken another victim. People started to believe that Bobby Fuller had died by suicide. One persistent rumor claimed that Bobby Fuller had insisted on playing his band's song, Another Sad and Lonely Night, ad nauseum in the weeks leading up to his death. In the final verse into the chorus, Bobby sings, but in the end she led me through. Her love, it turned out, was untrue. Another sad and lonely night, another sad and lonely day, another sad and lonely night without my baby. 
Bobby's former bandmates have since dispelled the bit of gossip, claiming it was the romanticized daydreams of overly maudlin fans. But as it turns out, there may be a kernel of truth behind its sentiment. Because shortly before Bobby's death, he received a letter from an old love interest. In it, his ex confessed that she still loved Bobby and that she wanted their family to be together. Her, Bobby, and their daughter. Coming up, some believe that notorious cult leader Charles Manson had a hand in Bobby Fuller's death. Now, back to the story. Almost immediately after his July 18, 1966 death, police ruled that Bobby Fuller died by suicide, even before a medical examiner conducted an autopsy. Later, the coroner's report listed his death as an accident. Before Lorraine Fuller found her son dead, Bobby received an emotionally charged letter from an ex-flame. In 1964, 21-year-old Bobby had gotten romantically entangled with a young woman. For privacy reasons, no source that we found listed a last name. She is simply referred to as Susie or Doe. Bobby and Susie's relationship blossomed over bowling, concerts, and home-cooked meals in El Paso, Texas. In early summer 1964, the couple rented a motel room for the night. After arriving, Susie informed the musician that she was pregnant with his child, but she didn't receive the reaction she'd hoped for. Bobby panicked. Fifteen minutes after arriving at the hotel, he jumped into his car and abandoned Susie, leaving her with only her tears to keep her company. A child stood in the way of his chances at stardom, and so did a bride. Later, Bobby suggested he drive Susie to Juarez, Mexico, to have a discreet abortion. But Susie wanted a ring on her finger and a father for her child. Ultimately, the couple decided that Susie would marry one of Bobby's friends, an Air Force veteran and salesman named Bruce. Bruce agreed to claim the child as his own, so Susie and Bobby could avoid the shame associated with having a child out of wedlock. On August 1st, 1964, Susie and Bruce got married in El Paso. Shortly after, Bobby left for California. About a year and a half later, in early March 1966, the Bobby Fuller Four played a concert at the Coliseum in El Paso that Susie attended. Afterwards, she introduced Bobby to their daughter, Allison. The star didn't have much to say about his child beyond, she's all right. Shortly after, Susie wrote a love letter to Bobby. It spoke of her undying love for him and how she wanted to raise their child together. The letter ended with a reference to the Bible's Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verse 6, often used during wedding ceremonies. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. The subtext of those words, you abandoned me. When Susie discovered that Bobby died a few months later, she assumed her letter had driven him to kill himself, and maybe it did. 
But Susie was just one of many complex relationships Bobby had been involved in. And Allison wasn't his only child. When Bobby met Susie, he was already engaged to his childhood sweetheart, Pamela. Bobby and Pamela were long distance and on the rocks, but by no means over. Around this time, Bobby wrote a song for his fiancée. Released after his death, the lyrics go, Say you're in love with me. Say it for all eternity, my Pamela. And one day soon, she will be my wife. She'll live with me for the rest of my life. And at the same time that Susie told Bobby she was pregnant, another woman, reportedly made to live in hiding in New Mexico for nine months, was giving birth to their son. Ultimately, the young woman named Mary is said to have put the child up for adoption and returned to Texas. By April 1966, Bobby had broken off his engagement with Pamela. He had a new girlfriend who was based in New York, a flight attendant named Nancy Norton. The two spoke the night before he died. While some point to Bobby's complicated love life as motivation for suicide, Bobby had allegedly been trying to get Nancy to move to California, which indicates that he had plans for a future and seems to support the position of all of Bobby's loved ones who vehemently insist that they're 99.9% sure that it wasn't an accident or a suicide. But Nancy wasn't the last woman Bobby spoke to on the night he died, and there are plenty of existing theories that discount suicide. In the early morning hours, Bobby placed a call to Melody Dawson, allegedly she sold Bobby drugs. As far as we can tell, it's unclear whether Bobby and Melody had any sort of physical relationship. It certainly wouldn't be out of Bobby's character. That said, Melody is shrouded in mystery. Sources vary on her relationship to Bobby, her profession, even her name. Melody, or in some cases referred to as Melanie, may have been a bartender at PJ's, Los Angeles's first discotheque and a celebrity hotspot. Bobby and friends frequented the club along with crooner Frank Sinatra and actress Mia Farrow. Melody may also have been a sex worker. Either way, in relation to Bobby's death, her name is sometimes referenced for her suspected connections to the mob. The unknown car that Bobby saw in Melody's driveway a few days before he disappeared? Some believe it belonged to a gangster boyfriend, which is why Bobby and Rick never went in the house to pick up the LSD. When Bobby returned to her house on the night he disappeared, maybe Melody's alleged mobster companions saw Bobby and followed him home. The theory has some legs. Throughout much of the 40s and 50s, Mickey Cohen viciously and successfully ruled the Los Angeles organized crime scene. Five years before Bobby's death, officials sent Cohen to Alcatraz for tax evasion, but crime families like DeSimone and Bonanno filled the vacuum. So, while the mob's hooks in Los Angeles retracted a bit, its presence in the 60s was still widely felt. 
Rick Stone claimed that a car followed him and almost ran him off the road in the Hollywood Hills on the day Bobby died. He also stated that two men with guns tried to break into members of the Bobby Fuller Four's homes. According to Randy Fuller, the mafia ran the Hollywood music industry at the time, and Melody wasn't the only person suspected of underworld ties. The Bobby Fuller Four through Delphi Records had allegedly signed some sort of distribution and copyright deal with Roulette Records. The godfather of the American music business and suspected kingpin Morris Levy owned Roulette Records. And as negotiation tactics go, Levy had a history of using brute force to get his way. In his 2010 book, Me, the Mob, and the Music, musician Tommy James claimed that Levy once threatened to disembowel him. In a dispute with singer Little Richard, Levy threatened to rip the singer's face off. According to James, Levy has connections to a number of murders that remain unsolved to this day. But why would Levy need to resort to violence with Bobby? Well, Levy's alleged motivations center around a controversy that had nothing to do with Bobby's love life. In the days and months leading up to Bobby's death, Bobby was considering going solo. By some accounts, the Bobby Fuller Four and Delphi label executives were supposed to discuss Bobby's desire to cancel his contracts and quit the band at the 9.30 a.m. meeting that Bobby never showed up to. If Bobby left, Morris Levy would have potentially lost out on a major investment, and so would others at the band's record label, Delphi. And the owner of Bobby's record label, Bob Keen, allegedly had an $800,000 life insurance policy taken out on the rock and roller. Today, that amounts to more than $6 million. Maybe Keen and Levy saw the money as severance pay for Bobby leaving them in the dust. Maybe they hired someone to kill the singer and make it appear accidental so they could collect on their policy. There are some types of death that insurance companies don't cover, but they do cover accidents. And as it turns out, Keene supposedly hired a private investigator to ensure that Bobby's death was officially marked as accidental. But if Morris Levy had a hand in Bobby's murder, concrete evidence has been difficult to come by. That said, Levy wouldn't be the only suspect on our list capable of plotting murder from behind bars. Jim Reese, the lead guitarist of the Bobby Fuller Four, suspects that notorious cult leader Charles Manson might have been behind Bobby's death. He masterminded a string of brutal murders in the late 60s. And Jim's wife, Beth, claims that Manson had once wandered into PJ's nightclub asking for Bobby. He wanted to take guitar lessons from the front man. Manson, at the time, was a wannabe singer-songwriter who spent his days in and out of jail. Manson wasn't successful in music by any stretch of the imagination, but he wasn't talentless. He penned the Beach Boys' 1968 song, Never Learn Not to Love. Originally titled Cease to Exist, the Beach Boys changed a few words to the song and paid Manson out, so he was never credited. 
Maybe Bobby snubbed the unstable, struggling artist out of guitar lessons, and it cost him his life. It would be quite a leap in logic, but Manson wasn't known for being reasonable. And there is another bizarre connection between Bobby and the cult leader. In 1969, three years after Bobby's death, the Bobby Fuller Four's hairdresser, Jay Sebring, and Sebring's close friend, actress Sharon Tate, were killed on Manson's orders. Assuming it was murder, Bobby could have been one of Manson's earliest murder victims without anyone ever knowing about it. Unfortunately, there's no evidence. No murder investigation ever happened, which has led some to accuse the LAPD of negligence and others to believe that they were involved in a cover-up. Negligence is certainly a possibility. Two days before Bobby Fuller died, the famous chief of the Los Angeles Police Department, Chief William H. Parker, died of a heart attack after serving for almost four decades. At the time, the department was in disarray as they dealt with his loss. The LAPD was infamous at the time. Police brutally enforced and supported racial segregation, violently raided gay bars, and repressed most forms of counterculture. And there are allusions to a cover-up in a 1982 article from the El Paso Times. It reads, two private investigators, Tom Pugh of the Stein Agency in Los Angeles and John A. Webster of Berkeley, were hired to study Bobby's death. One investigator abruptly quit the case. The other quietly left town, saying he had been threatened. If true, whoever silenced those PIs could have been from the mob, the police, or a combination of the two. But it implies that someone didn't want the truth to come out. Unfortunately, no existing witness can account for what happened between 3 a.m. when Bobby left his landlord's apartment and 5 p.m. when Lorraine found his body. And the testimony of those who were at the crime scene differed drastically. There were a number of witnesses that saw burns covering Bobby's body at the crime scene. The medical examiner, however, found nothing to suggest he'd been burned. This discrepancy can be explained. Witnesses likely mistook Bobby's many blisters caused by the intensity of the gasoline fumes in the car for burns. But witnesses also claim that Bobby was covered in bruises and blood. They saw fresh tears on his slippers. And they say Bobby looked like someone had dumped gasoline all over him. Not to mention, Rick Stone remembers Bobby having at least five or six beers that night. And yet, the autopsy and toxicology reports state that there were no bruises, no cuts, and no alcohol in his system. Some witnesses claim that Bobby had his hand on the keys in the ignition, others that the keys weren't in the ignition at all. Both have very different implications. For all we know, he could have been coming, going, or staying put. When officials pulled Bobby's body out of the car, they claimed that rigor mortis had set in, meaning his joints and muscles had stiffened. 
This third stage of death typically begins about two to four hours after someone passes. Experiments have shown that in high enough temperatures, it can start affecting some parts of the body in as little as 30 minutes. On the day Bobby died, temperatures peaked at around 75.9 degrees Fahrenheit. Up to nine hours of the day were recorded at over 70 degrees. And he sat inside a metal car filled with gasoline fumes. Rigor mortis most likely would have set in quickly. Witnesses, however, claim they saw no signs of a struggle as they watched officials lift Bobby out of the Oldsmobile. If the rigor mortis was as advanced as they said, some suspect the removal wouldn't have gone so smoothly. In other words, if the witnesses' eyes weren't playing tricks on them, Bobby's body was freshly dead. Which brings us to the timeline, perhaps the biggest mystery of Bobby's death. As we mentioned, Lorraine Fuller checked to see if Bobby had arrived multiple times that afternoon. She was certain that Bobby's car was not outside the apartment when she checked at 4.30 p.m. Randy Fuller was certain that his protective mother wouldn't have missed the car if it was there, not after losing her eldest son, Jack. But one of Bobby's friends, Robin Vinikoff, claimed to have stopped by 1776 Sycamore around 3 p.m., two hours earlier than anyone else noticed the car. When he did, Apparently, Bobby's Oldsmobile was parked outside. Robin didn't see whether anyone was in it. Bobby's friends Ty Grimes and Mike Ciccarelli corroborate Lorraine's version of the story. Both insist that Bobby's car wasn't outside when they pulled into the parking lot, just about 15 minutes before police pronounced Bobby dead. It's improbable that 15 minutes would be enough time for anyone to kill themselves by inhaling fumes but it might be enough time to park a car, move a body, and leave. Grimes and Ciccarelli remember hearing a vehicle pull in behind them when they parked in the lot just before Bobby's body was found. They didn't turn around to see what the car looked like. They didn't think to. They never caught a color, make, or model. Or weather. They were alone. This is, unfortunately, where the investigation ends. The cold case from 1966 is unlikely to ever produce new leads. And while any of these threads might suggest a more sinister explanation for Bobby's death, they've all long since unraveled. Anytime a star dies, there's the temptation to ascribe more meaning to their passing to claim it was a sinister plot or an act of revenge or jealousy from a less talented, less attractive individual. But as we mentioned, fame does kill, and in the 60s and 70s, when drug and alcohol use was rampant in the music scene, this was especially so. Many musicians of this period were beacons of light in uncertain times. They sang about love and loss, but to an upbeat tempo and with a cheery rhyme. We like to think that perhaps the work they produced was too bright for the oppressive forces of the time, and that their creative abilities were snuffed out decades earlier than they should have been. But ultimately, we'll never know. Bobby Fuller's death 
and the death of so many other 60s and 70s music legends remains a mystery. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on Bobby Fuller's death, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book I Fought the Law, The Life and Strange Death of Bobby Fuller extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, But now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Unexplained Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Connor Sampson, with writing assistance by Allie Wicker, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.